I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn, please, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and in a little while, that's going to be our text this morning. I'm going to quote a couple of scriptures before that, but this will be our main text this morning, Matthew chapter 21. And we spent the last several weeks talking about, very broadly, the idea of walking in the fear of the Lord and, and letting the fear of the Lord be our guide and all that we say and all that we do. And we've looked at some examples of the early Christians in the book of Acts, how that even though they were commanded by their government to not speak in the name of Jesus and to not tell others about Jesus, they went ahead, they said, we're not worried about what man says. We're going to follow God and do what God says. And then last week, we had the idea of looking at walking in the fear of the Lord. We said it would be pretty important to understand Exactly what do we mean by the phrase Lord and who is Lord? And last week's message was simply, who is the Lord of your life? And either you are the Lord of your life or Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. And we talked about last week that the book of Acts tells us that it's not about whether or not Jesus is Lord in our eyes. God has already made Jesus Lord, right? Acts chapter 2 verse 36 Peter concludes the first gospel sermon by saying this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. The question is not, is Jesus Lord? The question is, have you made him Lord of your life? Have you acknowledged his lordship? And we wrapped up last week's lesson with this sentence. We said, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Remember us saying that? And that is very much true. If Jesus isn't Lord of our life and everything, then he isn't Lord of our life over anything. Well, what does it mean when we surrender the throne of our lives and give it to Jesus? What happens next? And I tell you right up front, Jesus moves in. That's what. When we make Jesus our Savior and our Lord, Jesus comes to dwell with us. Acts 17.24 tells us that God no longer lives in temples made with hands. Acts 17.24 says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we will look at this verse in detail in just a little bit, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Our bodies today are the temple of the Lord. God doesn't live in a place made with stone. This church building is not, you don't find the presence of God in this church building. Now we worship in this church building, right? And we do religious things in this church building, but God is found in our hearts. God is find in, found in my heart. God is found in your heart. The Old Testament temple was the focal point for God's presence before the new covenant came into being. However, the Old Testament temple was not the end-all, be-all for God's presence for all time. When Jesus came and he died and he rose again and he went back to heaven, there was no need for an earthly temple because we became God's temple. In the Old Testament, God had a, had a temple for his people. In the New Testament, God has his people for the temple. You 
see, we are God's temple. The old temple in the the temple in the Old Testament was simply a type or a pattern of what God had planned later on. In the old covenant, you had to go to the temple and the Ark of the Covenant to get in the presence of God. Remember in the Old Testament when our daily Bible reading, how God sat at the mercy seat? There were the, the wings of the on the angels of the Ark of the Covenant came together. That's where God was. That was the presence of God in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. But when we read about the temple of in the Old Testament and the first part of the New Testament, we need to read very slowly and carefully because a lot of times what's going on, especially when you look at the temple in the New Testament in Jesus' day, Jesus uses this temple to teach us a lesson. It goes deeper than just Jewish ritual. So with this introduction in mind, the fact that God no longer dwells in a temple made with hands, that God, the Lord, when we make him Lord of our lives and Savior of our lives, he comes in and he dwells in us. With that in mind, let's read our text this morning in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 12. That Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Three things very quickly about the temple this morning. Not only the Old Testament temple, but we're going to make application to the New Testament temple, which is our bodies and, and ourselves. So first of all, the corrupting of the temple, and then we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple, and then finally we're going to look at the celebrating or the celebration of the temple. But first, the corrupting of the temple. We understand in verse 12 it says Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. A little bit of an explanation might be necessary as to what's happening here. When people came to Jerusalem to do business in the temple, to offer sacrifices, to give a tithe, to give an offering, they would have brought Roman money or the money from whatever country they were from. The problem is, in the temple, the temple did business with temple currency. They didn't take Roman money. So they needed money changers to change the money from Roman money to temple money. Sort of like when I, we went, my family went to Canada, my dad had to have brain surgery, and a uh, specialist in Canada did that surgery, so... Mom and dad flew to Canada, but me and my brother and my sister and my grandmother and grandfather, we drove to Canada. And so when we got into Canada, one of the first places we had to stop was the money changer. 
where you take American currency, you turn it into Canadian currency. Back then, back in the mid-80s, American money was all green and white. Canadian money was all different kind of colors. It looked like Monopoly money. As a matter of fact, we, after the end of the week, we got ready to come back. My grandfather said, I'm sure glad to get back to American money. I felt like I've been cheating these people all week long. But that's what they did in the temple. But the problem was, here's where the issue was. There's nothing wrong with turning one currency into another currency. But let's say they would, the people bringing the Roman money, let's say they brought a dollar's worth of Roman money and gave it to the money changers. The money changers would give them 50 cents for it. And then they'd pocket the profit. They had a pretty good deal going on, didn't they, as far as profit was concerned. The trouble was, Jesus says, you're cheating people. The trouble was they had made the temple and they had turned the temple, they had corrupted it from the house of God and a place of worship into a place for ill-gotten gain. They had taken that physical place of worship and corrupted it and turned it into a place of ill-gotten gain. Now, remember when we started our lesson, we said God doesn't dwell in these temples. He doesn't dwell in the temple made with hands, with brick or stone or wood. He dwells inside us. So if it was possible to corrupt the Old Testament temple, wouldn't you suppose it would be possible to corrupt our temple, the New Testament temple? Now let's go over to 1 Corinthians 16 again. And this time we're going to spend a minute there. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and 20. And we're not done in Matthew. We'll go back there in a minute. But I want to make this point out of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, or bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are whose? God's. Your body and your spirit belong to God. Your body and your spirit are the temple of God. They are not yours. They are the Lord's. The Lord has moved in to you. The Lord has moved into your temple. Your temple is a place of worship for God. Your temple, we're to glorify God in all that we say and all that we do, our body is the means through which we express what's in our spirit. You say, well, what do you mean? The only way that you'll ever know me is by watching what I do. Now, what do I mean by that? The only way that I will ever know you is by watching what you do. Do you know why I can say that? Because whatever it is that we do, that reflects what's in our spirit, does it not? We don't do things without thinking about it. I, I, I talk to the inmates at Turney Center, and, and I say, well, why in the world, did, how did you get so caught up in that? And they said, well, I just wasn't thinking. And I said, no, what you mean is you didn't think it all the way through. You were thinking enough to get to that point. A man or a woman, I don't think, wake up in the morning and say, you know what, today I think I'm going to be unfaithful to my spouse. What happens is thoughts started taking place back before that that finally led from point A to point B to point C to the final point. 
Everything that we do is a reflection of our hearts. You say, well, I do glorify God in my spirit. I, I do glorify my God in my body. I've got a question for you. What about our eyes? What about the things you look at? What about the things that I look at? Do the things that we watch, do the things that we look at, do they glorify God? What about our ears? The music we listen to, the audio books we listen to, whatever it is we have on as background noise in our lives, does that glorify God? What about our hands? Do the things that our hands do where we work, the things in which we occupy our time during our recreation, the things that we do with our hands, do they glorify God? What about our feet? Do the places we go, do they glorify God or are we going places Christians have no business in going? What about our tongues? When people hear us talk, do the words that come out of our mouth, are they wholesome? Are they God-glorifying? You say yes. Before you get ready to say something or do something or partake in something, you say, well, I wonder whether this is right or wrong. Here's your test. Can you ask God to bless whatever it is you're getting ready to do? If whatever you're looking at, can you ask God to bless you while you watch it? If whatever you're listening to, can you say, God, bless me while I listen to this? Whatever it is your hands are doing, can God bless me while I do this? Wherever it is your feet are getting ready to walk, can God bless me while I'm in here? Can I say, God bless me while I do this? Whatever I get ready to say, can God bless me in my speech? You see, generally it's not the question is something right or wrong. Most of us, we know whether it's right or wrong or not. The question is, are we just going to do it? Are we going to let Jesus sit on the throne of our lives? Because if we are, that means he's moved in. He's moved in and he wants us to glorify him with our bodies. Our bodies aren't his. That passage there in 1 Corinthians says, we were bought with a price. Our bodies are not ours, they're his. I think I misspoke a second ago. Our bodies don't just belong to us, they belong to him. We need to remember that. Otherwise, we corrupt the temple. We become like these money changers were that Jesus had to run out because the temple had become corrupted. But then back in our Matthew passage, Matthew 21, that's the corrupting of the temple. Now we get to the cleansing of the temple in verses 12 and 13. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. There was a college that had a goat as a mascot. They, whatever university, they were the rams and a goat was a mascot. And they were trying to decide where it was that the goat was going to live. And some of the guys said, well, that goat can live in our room. He can just move in with us and live in our room. And somebody said, well, what about the smell? And the boy said, well, the goat will get used to it. 
You see, when Jesus moves in, when God moves into our temple, it's not up to him to get used to the smell, amen? When Jesus moves in, he cleans house. And he rearranges the furniture. And he gets it fixed to suit him because it's his, right? It's not ours, it's his. Jesus will not live in a dirty house. He will clean house. He will rearrange his temple in order to make it a fit place for God to dwell. In John chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, we think that there were two different cleansings of the temple, one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one at the end. The one in Matthew is probably at the end of his ministry, but in John chapter 2, the book of John covers multiple Passovers, and so we think in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he cleansed the temple as well, a very similar situation. But in John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, When he, that's Jesus, made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the table. You say, well, how is Jesus going to clean house? There's two primary ways Jesus will clean house. When Jesus moves in, he cleans house. Number one, he will clean house by way of chastisement. Isn't that what he did with the whip? That's chastisement. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now what in the world is the Hebrew writer talking about there? couple of things. First of all, every true believer will experience chastisement from God. Every true believer will experience chastisement from God. How many of you all, when you were growing up, got taken to the woodshed by your mama or by your daddy or got a whooping by your mama or by your daddy? That's chastisement, right? Parents, how many of y'all whooped your kids? Or punished your kids. It's part of being a child. It's part of having children to discipline or chastise, right? So scripture here tells us that every believer is going to be chastised. We are all going to experience God's discipline. Now if somebody says, well, I haven't been disciplined. You know what this scripture says? This scripture says, now listen to me. This scripture says, if you haven't been chastised, you were not truly a child of God. He says you're illegitimate. If we have been chastised, when Jesus moves in, Jesus will clean house. And if Jesus hasn't moved in, y'all, we haven't been born again. If Jesus isn't living in us, if the Holy Spirit isn't living in us, then we're not truly born again. And if the Holy Spirit's living in us, Jesus living in us, he will clean house, he will discipline us. If you're a born-again believer, 
And it seems like you can't get rid of that black cloud that's in your life. And let me say this. We will all have times of when things don't go real well. You know, Scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust. Job says God gives, God takes away. So some of that is just the natural order of things. But can I tell you this? If you're like under that black cloud and you can't get out from under it, will you please go to God in prayer and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? Lord, I see you rearranging the furniture of my life. What is it you want me to do? That's God's chastisement. Every believer faces it. And if you're not facing chastisement from God, you need to ask, are you a true believer? Have you truly surrendered your heart to the Lord to be born again and let him come in and live in your heart? But there's a third thing in Hebrews 12, 11, 10 and 11. The same scripture, Hebrews 12. Verses 5 through 8 tells us that every true believer is going to experience chastisement, discipline. It also tells us that if the Lord isn't chastising us, that we aren't true believers. Hebrews 12, 10, and 11 teach us a third thing, or teaches us a third thing. For they, that's our parents, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Three things about chastisement. First of all, every true believer will experience it. Number two, if you're not experiencing chastisement or discipline from God, you need to ask whether or not you're a true, a true believer. And number three, the reason God chastises us or disciplines us is to make us holy. To make us like him. Now when our parents discipline us, they discipline us to try to turn us into who they think we ought to be, right? The worst whooping I ever got. I don't remember, I don't even remember what I did. Because the whooping I got for that wasn't that bad. But my mom whooped me, and I looked right at her and I said, that didn't hurt. <laughs> and I got a real whipping then. That one, I remember that whipping. See, our parents chastise us to make us what they think we ought to be. God doesn't chastise us for his pleasure. And sometimes God's chastisement hurts. Sometimes God's discipline hurts. I was 13 years old, and I was fairly tall at 13 years old. And I think I've shared this story with you before, but it fits right here. We had a U-shaped table where my, my grandmother would cook all of our family dinner uh, every evening, supper. And we'd all sit around the table. My grandmother sat at this end of the table, and I sat right to her left like this. And I, my grandmother said something, and I said something real smart. I don't remember what it was I said. But I do remember my next conscious thought was laying my, I was laying on the ground looking up at the lights. And my grandmother said, and my grandmother was like four foot eight, four foot nine. She was a little bitty lady. And she says, boy, if you can't talk like you don't have any sense, don't talk at all. That smacking hurt. But you know what I learned? I kind of learned there's a time I need to keep my mouth shut, right? Chastisement hurts sometimes. 
Discipline hurts sometimes. Discipline is not, is not fun. And I remember my dad and my grandfather and my mother, they would say, this hurts you worse than me. And I'm thinking, you're crazy. After I've had children, you know what? That's true. I never wanted to discipline Leandra. I never wanted to whip her. I never wanted to ground her. I wanted to do good things. I wanted to, to but you know what? I knew as a father that if you don't show discipline, children don't learn. Cleansing of the temple. When we corrupt our temple, just like Jesus wouldn't put up with the money changers in his father's house, he certainly is not going to put up with us corrupting our house, right? His house. He's going to cleanse it. And he, one way he cleanses it is through chastisement or discipline. The second way he cleanses it is through disruption. Did you notice what he did when he went in the temple? Not only did he take the whips back in Matthew 21, he turned over the tables. Could you picture that? He just flipped those tables and turned them over. He took the seats that the folks that were selling the doves, he run them out of their seats, kicked the seats out from under them. He disrupted that temple. Y'all, Jesus will chastise sometimes through discipline, but Jesus will disrupt your life too. Jesus also cleanses his temple by disruption. And when he is Lord of our lives, when he is sitting on the throne of our life, he has got every right to disrupt, right? He's got every right to chastise. He's got every right to discipline us. Jesus is not afraid to turn over the tables of your life and disrupt the very course of your life in order to get your attention. You know the guy from the Sprint commercial. Can you hear me now? That's what Jesus does to us. He disrupts our life. He disciplines us. He chastises us. And he's saying, can you hear me? Do I have your attention? How much else am I going to have to do to get your attention? We humans tend to corrupt temples. Whether they are temples made of hands or our human spiritual temple inside of us. When Jesus moves in, he'll clean house. He'll cleanse that temple. So we've seen the corrupting of the temple. We've seen the cleansing of the temple. And now we're going to see the celebration of the temple. Look back at Matthew 21, verse 15 this time. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? The temple wasn't there just for any other reason, just for whatever. You could use it for this reason, for that reason. The temple had a purpose, and the true purpose of the temple was always positive. Used for God's given purpose, there was always something to celebrate going on in the temple. First of all, this passage tells us that the temple was a place of, a place of prayer. Matthew 12, verse 13, he says, You've taken my father's house and turned it from a house of prayer 
into a den of thieves. In the Old Testament, do you remember the altar of incense that was in the Old Testament? That is simply symbolic of the prayers that are going up continuously to God. Marie has this pumpkin spice all over the house. She's got stuff plugged into the walls and got candles lit and the house smells like pumpkin spice and and man, that just it smells wonderful. And I, I, as I was getting this lesson together, I got to thinking about the altar of incense. And every, remember when we read in our daily Bible reading how such and such went up as a sweet aroma to the Lord? That's what our prayers do. Our prayers are a sweet aroma to the Lord. Our temple should be a place of prayer. Is prayer rising up in your temple? Is your temple a house of prayer? Is your temple a place to pray? And I'm not talking about just the now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayers. I mean, is the line between you and God always connected? Or do you have breaks in service? When I go down to Wayne County, there's certain places on Highway 641 that you don't have any cell service and you don't have any internet service. Sometimes that's the way our connection is with God. Prayer is what keeps that line open all the time. You say, well, Brother Andy, I've got to work. I've got to drive. You know what? There's nothing whatsoever wrong with driving to Nashville. Sing a song of praise to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Do you know that's prayer? Prayer doesn't have to be just a request. Prayer can be celebration. Prayer can be worship. Prayer can be thanks. We can thank God for our blessings. I told you last week I went to the doctor at Vanderbilt and I went in through the parking garage five levels four times and couldn't find a parking spot. And finally on the fifth time around right next to the elevator a spot opened up. And I drove right into that and I said praise the Lord. That was a time of prayer, right? Something good happens. Are we so blind in our lives that things happen to us during the day we don't give God credit for letting that happen? God blesses us. Our temple should be a house of prayer. Our temple should also be a house of power. Notice in verse 14 of Matthew 21. The blind and the lame came to, him, came to him in the temple and he healed them. There was a lot of healing going on in the temple. The temple was a place of power. God's there. But can I tell you that the greatest power is not found in physical healing. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest human that's ever lived. In John 10, 41, John reports that John the Baptist never performed any miracles. Well, if John the Baptist was the greatest person that's ever lived and he didn't do any miracles, what power is there that's greater than miracles can I suggest to you that soul winning power, the power of a soul that was lost that comes to the Lord, that is the greatness of power. Here we found people with Jesus, not only were they being physically healed, what did Jesus do when he healed them physically in other scriptures? He forgave them of their sins, right? Remember, he got into a discussion with some religious leaders. Is it harder to forgive sins or to heal? <coughs> And, of course, they said, well, it's harder to heal because we can tell whether a person's been healed or not. Jesus says, okay, take up your bed and walk. And the guy 
took up his bed and walked, and he said, no, by the way, your sins are forgiven as well. He says, if I can do that, then I can do this. The greatest power that you have in your temple, your temple ought to be a place of prayer. It also ought to be a place of power. The greatest power that you have is the knowledge of Jesus Christ that saved you. And that Jesus gave you a voice and a mind. Not for just your benefit, but to tell others what they need to do to get to Jesus. The greatest power you possess is the power of a soul winner. The power of telling others about Jesus. The power of, other, the power of pointing others to Jesus Christ. The temple is a place of prayer. It's a place of power. The temple is also a place of praise. Verses 15 and 16. And we've read those verses several times already. One last time. But when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he had said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? When your temple becomes a house of prayer, and when your temple becomes a house of power, by that very fact, or by those very facts, it becomes a place of praise. You can't pray to God without praising Him. Have y'all noticed the sunsets we've had the last few evenings? It just looks like God took a bunch of different colors and just pitched them up there in the skies. God's a terrific artist. But I see that, man. It's praise the Lord for letting us see that. When God answers your prayer, maybe you've been sick. You say, God, if it's your will, make me well. When he makes you well, do you praise him? Or do we go on to our next thing? Our temple needs to be a house of praise. The corruption of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, the celebration of the temple. When you and I are born again, Jesus lives in us, and we become the temple of God. Paul asks the question, he says, don't you realize there in 1 Corinthians 6 that when you're born again, your body is not yours, and your spirit is not yours. You were bought with a price. You say, what's that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bought and paid for you. What gives you the right to make, or what gives him the right to be Lord? He paid for you. Our verses this morning in Colossians, our Sunday school lesson, we talked about being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by the blood of Jesus Christ. We had three themes in our Sunday school lesson this morning. We are set free by Jesus Christ through his blood. That gives him the right to be Lord. That gives him right to be Lord of my life. It gives him right to be Lord of your life. It gives him right to be Lord of all. And y'all, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. What changes do you need to make in your life? What is it that there that you're not glorifying God with in your temple? Maybe it's your eyes, your ears, your feet, your hands. 
Can I encourage you? Just go to God in repentance and say, Lord, I didn't realize that, but now I understand what you're showing me. I see that. I want to walk with you. I, I want to be. I want to turn my temple into a, a place of praise, a place of power, a place of prayer, a place of glory to you. And then start living that way. Amen? Let's bow. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us and thank you for saving us and I just pray that you would do a work in our hearts, examine our hearts, examine our spirits to show us whatever it is in our life that needs to be rearranged, Father. And I just pray that we would let you rearrange our temple however you want to rearrange it to make us like you, Father, and to help us, help to use us to reach others for you. Thank you for loving us, Father. Thank you for paying the price to buy us back from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus through his blood. In Jesus' name, amen.